So last week we looked at First Peter, and we talked about how we should be submissive to our government, uh, everybody's favorite topic, and how uh, Jesus is the cornerstone that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So we looked at that. We're going to come this week to submission to masters and also submission within the household. So what that submission should look like between a man and a wife within that family unit. So starting in verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, we will look at this text here. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps." who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So up here back at verse 18, we have this word servants. And we've seen bondservant. We've seen that doulos before, but this is actually not doulos. It's talking more of a household servant, not this under rower or this bond slave. So in more of a household sense, it says, be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So it's easy to be submissive and to follow orders from a good master. And, you know, this is not culturally irrelevant to us. Now, they are saying servants, and we may not have servants in that sense, but we still have bosses, okay? And it's the same thing. It's talking about a household servant or any of us who are employed. Okay, so that's who Peter is talking to. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. You ever had a harsh employer? Yeah, maybe you do right now. I don't know. Um, I've had harsh employers, and I've had good ones. And the harsh ones make me extremely thankful for the good ones. I will say that. But we need to respect them alike because God has placed them in our lives in that position. He has ordained them uh, to be our boss. And it's no different for the good or the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You know, if you mess up or even deliberately mess up, if you log too many hours and you know you did it, you get caught for it, and your boss yells at you, you had it coming, right? I mean, nobody's going to argue that. And if you take that patiently, what credit is that to you? You earned it. But if you do well, if you're a good employee, and say you, you work overtime and you don't get compensated for that, Then your boss comes in the next day and yells at you for something that you didn't do. If you take that patiently, then that is commendable in the sight of the Lord. And that is an unexpected reaction to that situation. See, people don't expect you 
to react patiently when you're wrongfully accused. They expect you to rise up and fight back. So that's why it's commendable. And further, we have this example for us that was set in Christ. So that's the example of suffering patiently that we have to follow. It says, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? So if you deserved it, I mean, you kind of have to take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, and that is suffering with patience, this that he's referring to. For to suffering with patience you are called, because, now this is why you were called to that, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, this is an interesting construct in the original language here. It's this idea of an example. If you think about like a heavy snow, you get a heavy snow and you've got a little toddler. He can't walk through that snow by himself. So you, you walk through it and you leave your footprints and then that toddler can follow in your footprints. That's this idea of an example that we have to follow. We're following in the footprints that Jesus has already made. And it says, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And this verse 22 uh, is quoted from Isaiah 53, 9. And it's quoted as an example of the innocent sufferings of Christ. Back to verse 21, he says, For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. In Colossians 1.11, Paul records his prayer for the believers in Corinth. He asks that he asked to God that they would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Now we just went through Colossians and we looked at that a little bit closer, but I certainly would not put patience and long suffering with joy. Those are not two things that I would want combined really ever. Like, you know, you don't want to suffer long with joy. It's not in our nature. But Paul asks that God would strengthen these believers to be able to do that because he knows that we can't do it uh, of ourselves. We need that divine help to suffer long with joy. And so it's the same idea here in 1 Peter. We're called to suffer with patience, with this long suffering. Okay? It's not like one second you have to endure the suffering and then everything is taken away. All the suffering is taken away. It's long suffering. This world is cruel to us. And we saw last week that we are going to be called evildoers and we are called evildoers. Um, when Nero burned Rome, uh, it was a kind of an accident through his circus Maximus that he set up. And it ended up that the whole city burned. Guess who he blamed it on? He blamed it on the Christians. These wild Christians going out burning the city. So we are going to be called evildoers. We are going to suffer these things. 
And it's been happening since the beginning. And so we have to take these things patiently. We cannot rise up, let our flesh come through, overrule the spirit that is supposed to be ruling us, and take control. We can't let that happen. Who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So it's silent suffering. Jesus didn't fight back. He knew why he was here, and he knew what his portion was on the earth. He knew that suffering was part of the Father's ultimate plan for salvation. And he knew that without that suffering, none of the salvation that we have would have been afforded to us. So he knew all of this, and he accepted it, and he took it patiently. Uh, like a sheep going to slaughter, he, he made no noise. He was taking this suffering patiently. He did not threaten. Now, that's interesting to me because he had a lot to use to threaten someone. Do you know who my dad is? <laughs> they would have probably run away screaming if they, if they really understood what was happening there. Because the one who holds everything in his hand created them was the father of this guy that they were brutalizing. If they only knew what they were doing. And it's interesting that Jesus does pray to the father and say, Father, they know not what they've done. They really didn't know. And, you know, I can't say that about someone when they wrong me, that they don't know what they're doing, because I don't know if they know what they're doing or not. But evidently, Jesus knew that these guys had no idea what was going on in the spiritual. And they were just doing what they were ordered to do. Um, So he did not threaten them with all of the things that he could have threatened them with, but rather he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He knew that there would come a time when these wrongs would be made right. And he knew that the one that he committed himself to, the Father, holds everything in his hand. And he would be the one to judge the evildoers, the true evildoers, right? So because of that reality to him, that God would finish the judgment someday, he was able to give himself to this suffering. That's what allowed him to give himself. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This bore our sins is very closely tied to the Levitical offerings uh, when they would transfer the sin of the trespasser to that animal that was being sacrificed. It's the same kind of term. Okay, He bore up these sins, the sins of the world, past, present, and future. There's no sin that has been committed that wasn't on his shoulders. And there's no sin that will be committed that wasn't on his shoulders. For all time, he bore 
the punishment that we had coming to us. You know, we talk about uh, this mercy and this grace, the mercy being not giving someone what they deserve and the grace giving them something they don't deserve. Both of those are at play here, the mercy and the grace. God did not impute on us what was due, which is death. But instead, he gave us, through grace, this eternal life. He substituted our death for the life of his son, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It's interesting that he says on the tree. Okay, we know from the Old Testament, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. That was a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. And, you know, many people actually died before they got to the cross. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a fairly common means of executing someone, capital punishment. But many people, through the beating that they received before even getting to the cross, they would die just from that, just the the pain and the shock. But Jesus didn't die. He made it to the cross. I think that was, there was a divine hand in that because he was to fulfill that prophecy. Cursed is he who hangs on the tree. And this is the tree that they're talking about. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. It says that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Well, having died to sins, we're released from that covenant that sin holds in us. Okay, It's like in a marriage, as long as you both shall live, you're bound to each other. Well, if the wife runs off, and starts messing around with another guy, she's an adulteress, while that covenant is effectual. If the husband dies, and the wife goes and gets remarried, she's been released from her previous covenant, and she's now able to make a new one with a new husband. So that's, that's the same kind of idea that we're now using to look at this death and the fact that we are a new creation in Christ. We have died to sins. So having died, we've been released from that covenant of sin, the old man, the the old nature. And then if we're dead, though, then what good is it? If we've been released from that covenant with sin, but we're dead, it doesn't do us much good. But look, here's, here's the cool part. Not only did we die with Christ, Paul refers to us as being raised with Christ. In Colossians 3.1, he says, if then you were raised with Christ. And that is that if really should be translated since. Since then you were raised with Christ. So we were released from this covenant with sin, but now we live for righteousness, not coincidentally, the next phrase from Paul in this verse in Colossians 3.1, one, 
deals with a life of righteousness that seeks those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So not only do we die to sin, dying with Christ, we are raised with Christ to a new life in which we seek righteousness. And that is the redemptive story, uh, all summed up right there. We were once dead to sin, then we died with Christ, were raised with him, and now we live with him. That's the wonderful news of Jesus. And I wish I could read the whole chapter of Romans 6, but I'm going to take just a couple verses and you'll, you'll really get the idea here. But this week, if you feel like you want to, read Romans 6 because it's awesome. And it sums up this idea really nicely. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And then a few verses later in verse 11, Paul writes, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So a beautiful summarization of what we just talked about. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Back to 1 Peter, uh, verse 24. At the end it says, By whose stripes you were healed. Now, in the Greek, it actually reads stripe in the singular. It's not a plural stripes. It's a singular stripe. And this word stripe refers to a wound trickling with blood. Okay, so we had this idea of Christ's back as one large mass of trickling flesh. There were pieces of bone in this whip with lots of strands. It literally would tear the skin off of someone. It wasn't like a a whip that we think of like Indiana Jones cracking his whip. It was literally tearing flesh off. So we have this mass of trickling flesh and the singularity the use of a singular stripe seems to indicate that peter is not necessarily talking about the physical beating that christ received but he's talking about something that happened in the spiritual realm when christ was crucified that stripe that wound his wound, by that we are healed. That doesn't happen in the physical, right? If someone else gets hurt, I'm not healed by that. You know, it it doesn't make sense. But in the spiritual, this is very true. It was Christ who bore on himself our sins. Having died, the punishment that was meant for us was laid on him. And by that stripe, in a spiritual sense, we are healed because he bore up our punishment. By whose stripe you were healed. John 4, Jesus 
tells the Samaritan woman at the well that the water he provides is living water. And to me, this idea of the trickling back, you know, kind of trickling with blood, this idea of living water, they all hearken back to this rock in the desert, which we know from Paul was Christ. So when the Israelites were traveling through the desert, there was this rock that literally followed them around. In the New Testament, we see that this rock was Christ. And this rock provided water for the Israelites in the desert. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus saying that he provides the living water, knowing that that rock was Christ. And then here we have this stripe that is trickling. In my mind, it all just kind of wraps it up. Like that's all just pieces of the same puzzle. It just kind of pulls everything together for me. Verse 25 Peter writes, for you were like, like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So we have a reference to sheep here. And we know that Jesus has been referred to as a sheep, the lamb of God, all of that. And then this reference to sheep is probably very significant to Peter. Because he has been told by Jesus when Jesus was restoring him into the fold that he was to feed Jesus' sheep, which is the church. That's, that's Jesus' sheep. That was in John 21. And then he also heard Jesus teach about the good shepherd in John 10, I believe it was. So... Peter has these associations with sheep already in his mind when he's writing this. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And you know the story, probably. The sheep, one of the sheep in this flock runs away, gets lost. And the shepherd goes out to find this one sheep, and he leaves behind the other 99 sheep just to go after that one that got away. And he goes, gets the sheep. He finally finds it. He comes back and rejoices. And all of his neighbors rejoice with him. And so how much more does the father rejoice when one of his sheep is found? For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers, overseer of your souls. So when we come back to the sheepfold, when we are born again into the body of Christ, there is a celebration in heaven that we can't see, but we know that they're going crazy. And that's cool to me. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, in chapter 3, we're coming into this area of marriage. Okay, so I want to lead, lead with a couple of thoughts on marriage. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. That is from Will Ferrell, so don't take that <laughs> for more than it's worth. An archaeologist 
is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. That's from Agatha Christie. Last one, I promise. Look, you want to know what marriage is really like? Fine. You wake up, she's there. You come back from work, she's there. You fall asleep, she's there. You eat dinner, she's there. You know, I mean, I know that sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. (laughs) That's from Ray Barone. But in all seriousness, marriage is the only institute that we have that was instituted before the fall of man, before sin entered the world. It's a very sacred thing, and it's something that God's hand is continually in. And it is also, I would say, the building block of our country, of society. You have these marriages who produce children, and then that is the family unit upon which society functions. If you don't have the family units, you don't have a society. You just have a bunch of individuals, right? So this idea of marriage and biblical marriage is very important to the correct functioning of society the way that God intended it to be. So we'll look at this, and I intend to be fairly lighthearted this morning, um, but, you know, with a certain amount of respect, and we'll, we'll see some respect in here. So chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. It says, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, it doesn't say that all women are to be submissive to all males. That's not what it says. We see in Galatians 3, it specifically mentions that males and females are equal under Christ. So spiritually, you're equal. There's no difference between you in the kingdom of Christ. It also doesn't say that you ladies need to be submissive to your boyfriends or that you need to be submissive to your fiancé. That's not what it's saying. Okay, It's specifically talking about marriage. So when you are married, you do have to be submissive to your husband. That's God's will for your marriage. It doesn't say that wives should be submissive to someone else's husband. You know, that could create a lot of problems. Okay, You are to be submissive to your own husband, and it specifies that. Be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, this is talking about the unbelieving husband, or maybe a believing husband who's kind of backslidden, he's fallen away, He's not obeying the word, as it plainly states. Now, the word, with that definite article there, the, it's talking about the word of God, the Bible, those ordinances, those commands. So he's not obeying the word of God. They, meaning you wives, without a word. So now we have a word, not talking about the word of God, but just a word, like you're speaking a word. 
So without speaking, they may be won by the wife's conduct, not the wife's nagging, not the wife's speeches, her um, incessant argumentative tone. Uh, It's by her conduct. So she is to live in a way that her husband sees Christ through her. And he sees the patience that she has, the respect that she has for him, which is extremely important, which we'll get to. Without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So this chaste conduct, that has an insinuation of purity. So you have this purity uh, coming into this relationship. And uh, with the word chaste comes that purity, but there's also a connotation of reverence here. So because you revere, you respect your husband, you will behave in a chaste manner. You'll be pure. You'll be reserved for him. So that's the idea. There's reverence here. And then right after chaste conduct, it says accompanied by fear. And that is quite literally reverence. That's a reverential fear. It's not a tormentive fear. So you should revere your husband and you should respect him. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Okay. This is somewhat cultural, but still applicable. So in the Roman Empire, you had these women who would do up their hair like really tall. They would intertwine gold in their hair, and it would be like a sensual thing. Like they would want to impress the guys. You know, like, look at my tall hair. Let's go. (laughs) So you had all of this going on. And um, Peter is talking directly about that. But he's also saying, don't be so focused on what's going on on the outside that you miss what's going on on the inside. So ladies, he's not saying don't wear makeup. He's not saying don't look nice for your husband. Because trust me, there are girls out there, ladies, women, who are looking nice. And your husband is likely around many of them every day. If he comes home to you looking like a sack of potatoes, that's not going to generally work out very well. So we're not saying don't look good for your husband. Don't try. You know, personal hygiene is important. But (laughs) he's just saying don't let the outward things overpower what's on the inside. Okay, fair enough. And... I'm sure that all of you have had the same experience too, but um, occasionally I'll see someone who is physically attractive and I'll be like, oh, like she looks nice. And then she will start cussing up a storm and just being rude to everyone around her. And you're like, oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. Like it doesn't go together and it's not attractive. When the outside, even if it looks great, the inside is not up to par with what's on the outside. Wah, wah, wah. Okay, it's, it doesn't go together. 
So we want to let what's inside reflect, I guess, in a, in a sense, what's on the outside. Okay, so let them match up. Okay, don't take the outside for more than it's worth. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Now, this is interesting because he's got this idea of arranging the hair, adorning yourself on the outside, and then he comes in with this example of the holy women who trusted in God, and he's saying they also adorned themselves, but they did it in a different way than these women who were putting their hair up big. He says, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves by being submissive to their own husbands. That's how they adorned themselves. They adorned themselves by following God's plan for their marriage, by being submissive to their husbands. And then he gives a very specific example. He says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, what he's not telling you to do is call your husband Lord. Okay? That is a cultural thing again, and it would be similar to us calling someone sir. Like, yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, so it it was very normal back then. I mean, just a sign of respect. But even though you don't have to call your husband Lord, your attitude can still say that. Your attitude towards your husband can be calling him Lord, can be respectful to him, can be reverential So this idea of respect, I've kind of hit on it a second, but I I do want to kind of look at it a little bit closer. And um, here in, which verse was it? Verse 2, he says, When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, fear being respect or reverence. It's interesting that wives are not commanded to agape their husbands. Okay, there's one time in Titus when older women are told to admonish the younger women to love their husbands. That love there is philandros, uh, from the root phylos, which is akin to uh, phileo, which we know is like a friendly love. So it's saying encourage the younger women to be the best friends of their husbands. And it's not agape. So why are wives not told to agape their husbands? When over and over, husbands are told to agape their wives. It's because God, he knows, he made you. He knows that you're different by design. The husband and the wife are different creatures. And the wife needs that agape from her husband. And the husband needs that respect, which is what the wives are commanded to give from his wife. Does that make sense? God doesn't have to command the women to agape, to love their husband. That's what they're wired to do. They will naturally show love to their husband. Women 
do not have to be commanded to love their husbands, but men have to be commanded to love their wives. They'll respect their wives. They'll have that reverence for them. That's how we're wired. But they do need to be commanded to love them. And it, it'll make more sense if you look at it this way. So if you go home to your husband and you ask him, hey, honey, would you rather your coworkers love you or respect you? It's a no-brainer. Every guy in the room is going to say, I don't care if my coworkers love me as long as they respect me. Am I right? Is that fairly accurate? Okay. So then if you are talking with your buddies and your wife overhears you, and okay, this is not a perfect relationship we're looking at here, you say, well, of course I respect my wife, but I don't really love her. What is that going to do to the wife that overhears that? Even though there's respect there, but there's not love. So guys have to be commanded constantly, love your wives. Show them that sacrificial love. And there's this scientist, I'm going to call him a scientist. He's a researcher. His name's Dr. John Gottman. And he, he's up in Washington, I believe, at Washington University. And he does research in relationships and marriage. And he wrote a book, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. And in this book, he boils down the success of marriages to two things. You want to guess what they are? Love and respect. This is a secular scientist who studies marriages. And he came to the same conclusion that we already had from Peter, from Solomon, and Paul. They all write about this, and they all tie in love and respect. In Ephesians 5.33, Paul says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect. Dr. Gottman came to the same conclusion. He can predict whether a couple will stay married or get divorced with over 90% accuracy from using this method that he's developed scientifically. And he's looking at love and respect. Very interesting. Um, He has a lot of other type of research too. I would recommend looking into it if you're interested. But again, a secular scientist, but doing a lot of good work. He's worked over 40 years in this field. So he's got a mass of literature. And... You know, God understands that we are different creatures. You can't, (laughs) you could, but it wouldn't be good. You couldn't leave your child with a 14-year-old boy to take care of him. But you might be comfortable leaving your child with a 14-year-old girl to take care of him. They're different. (laughs) Got some laughing. Yeah, they're different. And I worked with a lot of 14-year-olds this summer, both guys and girls, And we were doing a strength and conditioning program, so they were working out as I was working with them. I can tell you, if I left the boys' group for two seconds, they would be over there goofing off. The same age girls I could leave, and they could do the entire workout by themselves. Okay? Just, it really is a testament to how different uh, the genders are. But if girls 
got into an argument, they would say things to each other that I would never say to one of my friends. I mean, it can get rowdy. And then two seconds later, they're over there hugging and making up and giggling. Oh, (laughs) you're my best friend, you know? So that is how it is. And then boys, if they start getting into an argument, there's a line that you do not cross. It's a line of respect. And if the guy that I'm arguing with crosses that line, we both understand that there's likely to be a fist fight. Like, there is a definite line. For girls, it's not really that way. You just kind of go at it and then make up. Guys, they get into this argument, you approach that line, and then you stonewall. You just shut down. Because that's the more honorable thing to do than to fight someone. Right, guys? It's more honorable honorable just to walk away from a fight. So... In your marriages, it's a very similar mechanism that's working. You've got the guy that's stonewalling. According to John Gottman, 85% of the stonewalling is carried out by the males. So you've got the guy that's stonewalling the lady. All she wants to do is talk about it. Right, ladies? You just want to talk it out. And it's not seen as arguing. It's talking. (laughs) So you've got these two different languages that are being spoken. And you have to find the middle ground. Another study done by Dr. Gottman, he hooked up electrodes and he monitored the heart rate of couples in this study. And he monitored them while they were arguing. This is very interesting to me. I don't know if it'll be interesting to you. I hope it is the heart rate of the male skyrocketed when his wife inched towards him. The heart rate of the male plummeted when the wife left him alone. Now, when they studied the wife, the wife's heart rate skyrocketed. She got mad when he left the situation. And her heart rate was calmed down when he took a step towards her listened to her. Isn't that interesting? Completely, totally opposite responses between the husbands and the wives. So this realization that God is calling the husbands to love their wives, that's the language that she speaks. She could care less if you respect her. I'm kidding, but but really... The love is the language that she speaks. God calls the female, the wives, to respect her husband because that's the language that he speaks. You want to try something? Go home tonight. Nobody's talking. Wife, go up to your husband and say, Honey, I've just been thinking today. I really respect you. And I thank you for providing for our house, and I just really appreciate all that you do. See what happens. You got that respect in there, okay? He'll follow you around the house because you're speaking his language. If you've been in Spain for a year and you have met no one that speaks English, you finally hear someone on the other side of a wall 
speaking English, you're going to bust through that wall to talk to that person who speaks your native tongue. It's the same thing. We're just speaking different languages, and we have to speak the other one's language. So God knows what he's doing there. So when he gives you advice on marriage, just go ahead and take it for what it's worth. It's worth a lot. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Sir, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Verse 7. Now we'll get to the husbands. Husbands, likewise. So in the same sense as he was just talking to the wives, he's talking to the husbands now. Likewise, it means moreover, equally, in the same way. It indicates a similar attitude of love and respect on the part of the husband. He says, dwell with them with understanding. Now, this is very simple and very rudimentary in one sense. And in another sense, it's extremely deep. So in the first sense, dwell with them with understanding. Husbands should be living with your wives. Dwell with her, like in a very literal sense. Just live with her. And then in another sense, husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He came into her world, into the world where she would be, and he laid down his life there. He came and lived on the earth. He dwelt with us. So in that sense, husbands, live with your wives. Don't be married to your job. Don't be married to success or money or a hobby, whatever it is. Don't be married to that. Be married to your wife and be there with her. Be present with her. Live with her. Dwell with her. And do so with understanding. Understanding that she needs different things than you do. Understanding that there's that mutual respect that has to be there. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. He says to give honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, you see this verse and you get mad because, you know, it's talking about wives being weaker than the husbands. But look, it's not saying that wives are mentally weaker. Um, I know that's not the case. In fact, you, you've probably experienced your wife being two steps ahead of you when you're in an argument. She's mentally sharp. She's there. Okay? So you can't keep up with that. So the wife is not mentally weaker in that sense. She's not spiritually weaker. We already talked about that. Genders are equal under Christ. There's no distinction between you and your wife under Christ. She's not weaker in regards to pain tolerance, right? I thank God that I will never have to bear a child. She is not weaker in regard to pain. It's simply saying that in a physical sense, women are weaker than males. And that's true. I mean, that's scientifically, observationally proven that women are weaker than men. And that's what it's talking about. And 
it says a weaker vessel. The weaker here insinuates a fragility. The woman is more fragile physically than the male. So if you had a vessel that was pieced together, you would handle it with a certain amount of care and respect. And you wouldn't be tossing it around and, you know, mishandling it. But you would treat it with respect and give honor to it as the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, again, you are co-heirs with Christ, and you are such with your spouse. And this phrase, being heirs together, is actually the same phrase that's used in Romans 8.17 that says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. That joint heirs is the same phrase that's used right here when it says heirs together. So you are joint heirs with Christ and joint heirs with your spouse. Two, the grace of life. So that same eternal life that is afforded to you is afforded to your spouse. Okay, There's no distinction there. That your prayers may not be hindered. Now, it's helpful when reasoning through something logically to pull out the assumptions. Okay, So if you have a statement, uh, whatever it is, you pull out the assumptions, then that helps you get an idea of where the speaker or the author is coming from. So here we'll pull out this assumption that Peter has that we are praying with our spouses. He comes into this statement already thinking that we are praying with our spouses. So that should tell us the importance that that has. If he thinks that who he's writing to, these early churches, are already praying with their spouses, that should tell us that it's quite important. So I would encourage you, if, if you're not doing that, to pursue that, to pray with your spouse. And he says that your prayers may not be hindered. And I want you to ask yourselves these questions. And obviously you don't have to really respond to them, but just think about it. Can you go home tonight and pray with your spouse? Or is there something that needs to be set straight before that can happen? Is there something between you that's preventing that from happening? If there is, let's go ahead and set that straight so you can come back into communion with with each other in this way. So you can pray with your spouse and not let your prayers be hindered. Where are you with her or with him? Uh, Is that something that needs to be taken care of? Is that something that's good to go? Your prayer shouldn't be hindered by any kind of division between you. Um, You have become one flesh already and are heirs together of this promise through grace. And you're on the same team. So let's act like it. Okay. And I say that lovingly. I mean, I'm not, not getting on to anybody. But truthfully, we need to act like we're on the same team. Right.
So the last couple of weeks here, we've seen Peter talking about submission, okay, in different contexts. He's told us to live in submission to ordinances, to the government, which we talked about last week. And then this week, we talked about submission to your bosses and submission in the home. But none of these things can take place. You cannot be submissive in the way that Christ wants you to be submissive if you're not submissive to him first. He has to be in his proper position in your life. And if he is, all of these other things that he's asking you to do will fall into place because he is the cornerstone that you're building these things off of. He determines the angles of everything else in your life, including submission to government, submission in the home, submission in your workplace. He should be the determining factor where all these other things are going. Okay? So if he's in that proper position in your life, there shouldn't be issues in the other places. Now, today we were talking about a, I'm going to use the word ideal, an ideal Christian marriage between two people, a man and a woman, who both declare that Jesus is the Lord of their life. And I'm not so naive to think that there are not marriages that are not like that. I know that there are imperfect marriages, and there are marriages between a believer and a non-believer. And God provides the grace that you need to get through that. And we even saw some, a little snippet of how the wife can be ministering to her husband. It's through her conduct. Okay? It's not through her nagging. So live in a way that will represent what you want your husband to see, which is Christ. Right? With that, let's close and we will do so in a word of prayer.